On the Talking Stack today, we discuss how to assemble a sensible and practical MarTech stack, the challenges with integration across clouds, platforms, and those so-called Frankenstacks, highlights from three of the latest marketer surveys that have just hit the headlines, and David Raab's expert commentary on three new news announcements in the identity resolution space. All that and more on the Talking Stack today. Welcome to the Talking Stack Season 3, where your panelists David Robb, Anand Talker, Chitrayer, and the occasional special guest catch you up on the most impactful MarTech concepts, trends, and perspectives. Today we're excited to welcome our first guest of Season 3, who is, in line with our stated goal last week, a practicing MarTech professional with over two decades of experience in various marketing and Intel and analytics roles, including his uh, previous one as a CRM and paid media analytics lead for PlayStation. He's currently the Senior Manager Marketing Strategy and Operations at William Sonoma, Inc., one of the largest e-commerce retailers in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Pat. Thank you very much. And I'm sure the lawyers from William Sonoma would appreciate if I just say, all of the opinions shared today are simply my opinions and not the opinions of William Sonoma, Inc. Perfect. Thank you. That's exactly what we want today. In fact, your opinion, your experiences as a marketing technology professional. In fact, that is what a lot of our listeners want to hear about. You know, how does one become or grow into uh, the role of a MarTech professional? So why don't we start with your journey? What has got you to where you are in your career today? Thank you very much for having me. Uh, This is a great honor to talk to you, and I'm happy to share my story. So I always like to tell people that I'm really motivated by progress. So I just like to see things change and I tend to follow changes. And that means that my career is taking a very circuitous route. And I started out early supporting marketers and really found that one of the challenges was in the data. And in particular, uh, we were doing a large data migration project. So in seeing some of the bottlenecks there, I started to get more involved in the data and in the data migration, and then starting to analyze the data, troubleshoot the problems, investigate what was happening for the marketers. And I just began to get fascinated by this world of ever-changing software, technology, and data needs, and the data exploding, but at the same time, at the highest levels of any organization, the throughput into the CEO's eyes doesn't increase. So it just becomes this challenge of how do you filter, aggregate, and turn more and more data every year into the same amount of actionable insights or into automated that you can really trust through black boxes that maybe people don't fully understand. And whether you build those black boxes in-house or you trust a partner, it's pretty much the same paradigm. You can spend a lot of time analyzing data and you know, making it pretty, making awesome dashboards, but if no one's taking action on it, it really doesn't matter. So there's a lot of smart people working in business intelligence and data platform engineering and making MarTech products, and we wanna tap them, but we wanna tap them in as much as marketers have the capabilities to pull those levers understand the changes, execute on them through partners, and realize the results in a way that the board and executives can understand. And so to me, that's just like a a never-ending problem and a constantly moving target. So hopefully it keeps me employed for a while. 
Personally speaking, as a practitioner, what are some of the you know key milestones you've seen along the last two decades or so when it comes to using intelligence to make marketing decisions? I think the biggest change, and I can't say exactly when it happened, but probably around like 2008, was a shift in marketers' mindsets that they need to trust the data and listen to the data a little more than their own instinct. I think they always knew they needed the data to justify what they had already decided they were going to do, you know, kind of like cherry picking to tell the story to get your next budget. But, you know, that about 10 years ago, a little more, people were really like, you know, I think I can be more efficient. I think I can be more competitive. I think that maybe other people are going to eat my lunch if I don't start listening to this data, start building my models, uh, start hiring these people who maybe aren't creative, maybe aren't from my world, but I might have to start trusting some analytical people. And I'd say, you know, the other milestones as far as just pure technology is the data processing and visualization has come a long way in not requiring a team of developers to do each stage. I mean, we worked a lot with MicroStrategy and Cognos and, you know, other homegrown proprietary tools. And it's just like, yeah, they're great when you build them and then they're fairly static or, oh, you want a new attribute? That'll be a month or get in the backlog, you know? So when I saw ClickView, that was exciting. But when you try to scale these technologies to 100 or 1,000 users or you try to implement a security model or ETL on top of it, you end up instead with 100 Python scripts or, you know, I mean, you just create a different level of complexity and you could say the same thing about moving to Hadoop or the cloud or whatever. It's like you're trading out problems, right? So you have to decide what is your organization's appetite for this new type of problem? And do you really have the right people on staff or the right partners to guide you through that journey? Also, the in-house versus um, partner thing has changed a lot. You know, instead of it just being agencies where you kind of like, farm out a lot of the work, try to hold them accountable. They kind of try to hide how much margin they're taking from you. It has to be much more transparent. Like every MarTech vendor I talk to, whether we're in a prospects or even before they've signed an NDA, I'm often telling them about our whole stack. And I think people are shocked by that. But it's like, you could look at my LinkedIn profile or other people in WSI, or you could scrape our website. You can figure out what we're doing. So like, Anybody super motivated can get to this information. So it's not really non-public. It's more just like, how much do you want to confuse your vendors and have them pitch you on the wrong things? Or how much do you want to get to the point that you're doing co-development? They really understand your business and you're able to leverage resources across a variety of companies to get to this point where you're building value together and you're optimizing which resources, which algorithms, which servers are actually used. Tell us a little bit about your experience with assembling these tags and what's a rational and sane way to go about it and how do you also work with IT uh, productively and not as adversaries when you're trying to you know, gauge what stack will work for you? Sure. Um, there's a great tool I came across recently called Cabinet M. Cabinet M allowed us to visualize our marketing technology stack. It also helps to identify duplication track the integrations and the contracts. And 
just within a few weeks in a pilot, I was able to use it in meetings with executives to explain things that to a non-technical or non-analytical person, you, you need a diagram with icons and that's very easy to explain or to pivot and they have a dynamic tech stack tool. So I found that's a, a helpful starting place. If you're new to an organization, they already have you know a bunch of tools and you're like, who's using what, who's responsible for what? How do we even begin these conversations if you're in two-year contracts with some folks, you know, you're not gonna put it out for RFP or if others, you know, the data flows are embedded two ways through eight partners, you're like, yeah, might be a, a while to unwind. So I think you really have to ask yourself, what is the current state of affairs? How did we get here? And then my approach is you have to consolidate decision-making into a steering committee so that you can lay out a strategic roadmap for what can change when, right? You can't turn off the lights, you have to keep all the trains running, but you have to have an idea of which ones can be changed out in which time frame. So again, I would go quarter by quarter and just say, okay, what are we ready to commit to? We know this is a core strategic partner, they're adding value, we understand how they're adding value and we have clear relationship ownership on both the business and technology side then we just kind of check the box. We're not gonna consider replacing them this quarter. Okay, which ones are really expensive where we may have duplication or we're not getting full utilization or we're not happy with the relationship? Those might be ones to consider changing out. Um, the ones that are more commodity or low price, probably not worth your effort until you've addressed the bigger strategic ones. So I tend to be a fan, if you're not a technology company, go with a few big strategic partners, buy into one of the clouds until you know that you can do better or you can truly build one of these Frankenstacks. I'm skeptical. And so I say, if you're a big company, you have deep pockets, go with a few big partners, get the most out of them, try to transfer knowledge in-house. And then when you're down the road and everything's humming, you can figure out if there's niche partners who are asking certain aspects, but for the most part, you're just gonna create more tech overhead and integration. So you're either gonna have to do that in-house or pay somebody else to do it. Whereas if you just keep building within the capabilities of one of these large tech stack uh, partners, you're like an Adobe, a Salesforce, a Microsoft, uh, even an Oracle, um, you can get a lot of your marketing goals achieved, and maybe not all of them exactly as you would imagine, but I definitely would caution people against customization versus configuration. I think use the tools as they're intended to be used, participate in alphas and betas, but for the most part, go with what your vendors do really well and what they know really well, leverage their experts to make sure you're totally dialed in there. And if that's, you know, 80% of your spend or your focus, I think the other 20% you can get to when you have time. But, um, and if you're a smaller company and you're very cost conscious, I think you have to be very clear with your vendors on what your key goals are. And then really when you're RFPing, make sure that you're going to go through a pilot if they're willing to, you're gonna hold them accountable to one metric of success uh, so that 
you can actually conclusion, you're going to execute with them, and you're going to just have a close relationship. And I think for smaller companies, a lot of times a smaller MarTech vendor is going to serve them better because they're going to be uh, more hands-on and you'll be a, a bigger customer to them. Whereas if they have, you know, Fortune 100 customers, uh, you're going to get sent to a, you know, small and medium-sized business group that may treat you like a commodity. Enjoyed the show so far? Then subscribe or follow us and never miss an episode. Go to martechadvisor.com slash talking stack for show notes, resources, transcripts, and sponsorship information. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, and we thank you for your continued support. Now, back to the show. The Frankenstack discussion is, you know, one that happens a lot, and obviously people feel uh, strongly, I think, on both sides of that argument. Have you really seen that it's easier to integrate within the, within the Frankenstacks? Because as you know, they're all, are not the Frank, within the big clouds, which of course are, you know, as you know, built from separate products that they all acquired. And there's a lot of criticism about the degree of integration. You think that criticism is overblown? I, I don't know what your experience has been, you know, in the companies, which ones have you actually worked with? You might or might not want to make, name names, but, you know, have you found that, that they actually are a little easier to integrate than sometimes we think, or are they, just as hard as some people say, or just what's been your actual experience with that? Sure, yeah, I, I mean, I've used Crux, which, you know, Salesforce DMP, Exact Target, Salesforce Marketing Cloud, um, yeah, a bunch of uh, Salesforce.com, none of them talk right. You know, I mean, they're clearly still acquired products on their, their old technologies. Similarly with Adobe, I mean, trying to get Adobe Vista, Adobe Audience Manager, and Adobe Analytics talking across companies, pretty challenging. They all have to be on like the same versions and, you know, then they can't talk in the background. But I think what you get is much better engineering and product support from those folks when you have challenges and they can advise you and get you to an acceptable solution, even if it may involve a third party or some of your own development. Whereas I see when you try to build the Frankenstacks, um, you can run into just these um, insurmountable challenges. If you look at, um, I think it was from Chief Martech or something, um, there is some research about why marketing projects fail and integrations was the number one reason. So while a lot of these vendors out there pre-built integrations, they don't all you know, work to the same quality. Like Domo's integrations, they work really well, um, pretty smooth. You can try the same integration through Power BI and it might not be as smooth, you know? So it, it really, you have to test it out and figure how interoperable are, are these systems and then how technical are the folks I have in-house to help me? That was a great question, David, and I think uh, I think it's maybe one of the few times we've actually got an answer from, uh, you know, a, a, not a vendor, but someone who is a practicing professional who's actually felt the pain, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm going to actually, the rest of this conversation, I'm just going to do it in the context of these three reports that came out this week, and I'm just going to connect those reports. They're all pretty interesting reports, and audiences can find the links to all of them in, in my show notes. Uh, the first was the State of Branding Report 2020, which 
came out from Binder and it's really about the, you know, it focuses a bit on the technology from the branding and marketing aspects um, uh, and applications. And then the Inside Group released their State of Marketing Report 2020 which also had some thousand plus marketers talking about responding to questions largely about content and social strategies planned for 2020. And then finally, we had uh, another company called Chief Outsiders, which does executives as a service. So basically CMOs to be specific, uh, you know, two companies that need them, uh, fractional CMOs, I think they're called. Um, they did one on CMO priorities for 2020. So all of them had some pretty interesting connected stuff, and I thought it would be great to talk about uh, those findings uh, in the context of all our collective experiences. Uh, the first thing that struck out, and surprisingly, or not surprisingly, Patty was just talking about those pain points that uh, you know marketers feel with the integration. Uh, so from all three reports, a survey from Binder found that skill gaps data overload and too much choice were cited as the top obstacles to investing in tech-driven marketing. Okay, and the survey from Chief Outsiders found that 88% of CMOs see a difficulty in staying ahead of technology advancements and being able to sort of wrap around what next in their technology stack. Well, I think they're all just overwhelmed you know, by the variety of choice. I think what Pat was saying is dead on. You just have to kind of Force yourself to focus on what's important, which is what I took away. Uh, because yeah, you know, it's a rat hole. You can just you can just endlessly poke around, and you know, you're in this garden of this candy shop of all these fun things, and you know, you could do nothing all day long but sit and look at cool marketing toys, and that's actually what I do. But it's a lot of fun. But then again, I'm not a CMO, so I you know, I don't I don't have a day job. How do you actually assess one of these things? Here's something that looks like it might solve a problem of mine. But how do I, as a marketer or a MarTech person, really understand what it can do, what it can't do? Does it truly solve the problem? How much work will it be to integrate? And integration always comes up as you know the number one challenge with these things. Uh, and given the inherent limit on my resources, because I'm always going to have limited resources, no matter how many I have, they'll always be limited. So how, how do I, as a MarTech person, effectively and efficiently assess what the options are and kind of focus on the right ones? That's the big challenge. I tend to leverage third-party, quasi-independent, quasi-unbiased um, sources like, you know, Gartner, Forrester. I look at Surveys are things done by, you know, third-party consultancies on, on rating different software. Once I get into the point of talking to a vendor, I'll, I'll often tell them exactly what our stack is, exactly what our problems are, and I'll say, tell me where your technology is differentiating from this technology and what proof points you have. And if you can send me a one-pager on that, then maybe we can set up a next meeting. Um, and we really try to force them to give us their best research or best evidence first, then, you know, there's usually some degree of demos and almost always a pilot. Um, but I think that's appropriate for your larger decisions. I think for a lot of decisions, you should use more of a satisficing criteria rather than an optimizing criteria. In other words, are they good enough? Do they meet my baseline standard? Can I check the box? You don't need to consider, you know, a thousand tag management solutions, right? You know, I mean, like if they all are a commoditized solution and you're not looking for lots of bells and whistles, 
just choose one and move on. You have to decide what you're in the market for, and then you have to decide, you know, are you in the Gartner magic quadrant only in the upper right, and you're considering those top vendors, or are you a little just and you need to consider one of the other boxes, or maybe you're going to talk to industry peers or people who you know have used some of these vendors and look for recommendations from them on how much was this vaporware, how much were they overselling. But I think um, a lot of vendors will give you, you know, customer references if you ask for them. So that, that's a good way to kind of, you know, check the salesman. One uh, one really interesting aspect of integration and the pain that comes with it, Anand, I would love to hear your take on this is because you've been part of some, you know, mergers, acquisitions, different companies coming together. You've advised companies on that. What, what aspect do you see of technology integration in the MarTech function when these kind of acquisitions happen? There's usually two factors. One is cost, and then the other is um, the the aspiration, right? So it still comes down to even evaluating your usual MarTech vendors in a, in a certain capacity. But a lot of people, especially during a merger or acquisition, or perhaps like even in in the cases Pat alluded to, a raise where there's a lot of money in, in you know being uh, available for marketing budgets. Even in those transitions, I see a lot of similarities. So in the cost situation, you're not you know depending on who's driving the uh, you know the leadership of marketing or engagement with a customer. Uh, the, the on the cost side of things, it's are we seeing redundancy? Are we seeing challenges with uh, maybe an opportunity to renegotiate with vendors? It's a perfect opportunity to do a lot of that because both vendors are excited, and of course the you know the lead, marketing leaders are interested to see some sort of change happen. Um, so we see a lot of vendors, of course, uh, knowing about mergers before you know they're publicly announced so somebody's doing their job i guess um the the other cost factors include of course staff right unfortunately you know, you've got some incredibly talented people across the board if you're consolidating technologies does that also impact the staff um the you know then the leadership and has their favorites in terms of vendors so it's a, it's very political when it comes to that the aspirational part is uh, where we look at things or whether things have se are seen is, all right, there's a reason for this acquisition. Why are, what are we going after? Who are the priorities of people that we are going to focus on, either in terms of acquisition or churn uh, or retention, excuse me. And in that, in that state, you will look at the entire stack from that perspective, sort of, sort of like an inside out from a customer's perspective. What is that, you know, what does that experience look like? moving through, you know, the journey across these different brands or perhaps the new brand or, you know, how do the the evolution of, um, you know, the customer's journey uh, ex being experienced as the merger occurs. So there's two competing factors, of course, um, but a lot of times it's, uh, it, lots of times initially, especially, it becomes reduce redundancy, let's see what we have, don't interrupt people's cadences, at least for a couple of years, and then start to reevaluate where do we need to, you know, uh, match our technology to the business uh, cases or the business priorities that are out there? 
controversial topic there but let me let me pick on one more <laughs> controversial topic and uh, you know this uh, david you made an observation about the binder survey find one of the findings in the survey you said the scariest aspect of the survey was uh, that this market a heavy sample was evenly split down the middle i think at 30 and 31% about on whether marketing or it should be responsible for tech adoption right and in fact the, your words were let's be clear putting it in charge of market adoption will not end well okay <laughs> unquote <laughs> so we have to ask pat who's here and uh, you know who is quasi technical and marketing of course uh, you know what is your take on this extremely controversial topic who should be driving uh, the mar- marketing technology piece of uh, you know adoption as well as optimal returns Yeah yeah it's it's a great question and I think um it's something that a lot of companies are really wrestling with as as the survey and, and David's comments imply I firmly believe that it needs to be the marketers leading the vision the business requirements or business objectives and having technical people ideally in the marketing org who roll up to them with the same goals and same perspective who know enough about marketing to properly support those marketing goals so yeah i really believe that you will have in-house software development teams and integration developers rolling up to the cmo as a standard soon because the use cases and even the philosophy is so different from kind of the traditional IT cost center or even um you know enterprise software development it's all very different we're not building a product and we're not maintaining desktops right or we're adding value and building an engine that makes adding value and bringing the money in the door faster and easier so marketers have been doing that for years they're just changing you know some of the channels some of the touch points and the way i like to frame it is marketers should own the two-way conversation with the customer and as long as that exists and they're optimizing on the customer experience and and whatever metrics on ad efficiency roas you know brand uplift that they need to hit then they need the right amount of technical and analytical resources to support those goals. So that's where I I think there should be centers of excellence that cross the marketing org and the tech org where analysts meet or data scientists meet or developers meet, but I definitely believe marketing needs its own analysts, its own data engineers, its own um technical folks who their goal is to learn marketing better to support marketing better and not to write the most efficient code that runs the fastest for you know uh selling a product and bragging about your your processing capabilities to a client you know it's a very different use case that uh, one of the things in uh, one of the findings from that chief outsider survey of cmos was that 53% of cmos advised retailers to take a direct to consumer strategy kind of approach to thrive in in this amazon dominant economy of 2020 and beyond now what exactly does a d2c focused strategy really mean uh, uh, you know is it is it focused on customer experience on increased social media investments what is it that is special about the way d2c 
uh, guys are actually winning with customer experience and punching so way above their weight? Um, I think you know the the new wave of D to C is is really more tech first, data first. Um, you can think back to the original D to C as much more the catalog business, right? So William Sonoma used to be the largest sender of catalogs in the country. Um, so definitely a D to C leader in that space. Um, and I think. Ideally, you're sending, you know, of course, the right message to the right person at the right time. But I don't think a lot of um, the data is there, even in the new D2C folks. So I'd say they're largely just lowering operating costs by not having stores. They become buzzworthy and they're hitting people and getting low conversion costs. So, like, that's kind of the model. But you see a lot of them now needing a retail presence, physical partner. So I think that kind of like dream of, aha, we're going to completely beat out retail and just be online is, is even being shifted by Amazon, you know, and their acquisition of Whole Foods, their Amazon um, Go stores. I, I just see people need a physical world presence, whether it's, you know, delivery within an hour or a convenience store down the road. At some point, we're so inundated with, marketing messages that only so many DTC providers can get through. So what will make DTC differentiating in the future? In my opinion, it's it's building authentic trust and having a true two-way conversation with the customers so they feel listened to and respected and that you're not just pushing product at them, but you're actually offering them things that may enhance their lives um, at a pace that they can consume them. And then I think the other thing is tying together surveys and panels with intelligent data modeling and lookalikes is how you will get to better insights and experiences without having to test uh, huge amounts of media spend in A-B tests or to trust the vendors. You know, it's like, listen to the customers, if your employees are customers, use them as your alpha group, you know, try to figure out an employee panel that looks like a customer panel that's representative of your entire customer base and test through those in tiers, learn really fast, and then scale your investment. So that's the way I see DTC becoming really an enabler and a more personalized experience in that. If, if it's approached that way, it gives room for smaller companies to fill more niche markets and the bigger companies to fill the more commoditized markets. Great. Thanks for that. And funny, you mentioned that whole shadow industry of uh, of people trying to understand who that consumer is, even though they haven't really asked the consumer for their consent. So that brings me to, you know, to these three uh, surprising, uh, you know, surprisingly, again, three pieces of news <laughs> about identity resolution. So, David, you know, let me get your inputs on this. Let's start with Merkle launching Mercury Identity Resolution Platform. Okay. What on earth are private identity? graphs and you know what can marketers do within that they couldn't do before uh, so a private identity graph would be my company so William Sonoma's own cu customer data linking uh, the different identities for those customers just using their own information that's presumably what uh, 
Merkle means when, when they use that term, as opposed to the public identity graph where the data is gathered by third parties and they link it all together using all, all those shadowy technologies that <laughs> Pat was just referring to. Um, and as privacy regs become more powerful, the public data becomes less available or at least less shareable, so private identity graphs become more important as sort of the dynamic that's going on uh, with Mercury. And then what's also going on there is companies sharing a second party data with each other, their identity graphs, so they can supplement the Williams-Sonoma data with data that comes from American Airlines and Bank of America, you know, presumably non-competitors, although certainly in the catalog industry, there's a history of, of uh, you know, other catalogs sharing with each other as well. So, so there, now you get these sort of marketplaces or whatever you want to call them, that, that there was this really odd uh, or rather frightening uh, line in the press release about Mercury about, you know, they, they were going to be selling programmatic access to identities, which, you know, sounded like set off every privacy bell, every alarm, certainly in my little brain. It said, whoa, you know, it's exactly the stuff that everybody hates the idea of is people trading identities like baseball cards. Okay, 180 by 2 launches Unify, an AI-powered customer data and identity platform for B2B marketers. Now, you know, after the recent uh, demise uh, in sort of, of radius and the general understanding that B2Cs are much more sort of conducive for CDP style and CDP scale platforms, why this launch, do you think? Well, the thing about 180 by 2, and I just... I want to comment on the side that these guys all have funny spellings with all these words. It must be an identity thing. Maybe they're all like trying to establish their own identity. But um, <clears throat> so they, B2B has always used a lot of what's really third-party data, right? A lot of compiled data. So, you know, it just makes sense in B2B. There's only so many companies you can actually make a list. You can start with Dun & Bradstreet and work your way down of companies who, who built that. So in, in a way, it's much easier to do in B2B than it is in B2C. So you've always had this market of data that companies want to use to enhance their internal data. And that, that's, you know, this is more of a data than an identity platform, the way I'm reading it. It's like, okay, we have, we're compiling all this data that we can now make available to you, Mr. B2B marketer, uh, about your customers and about your prospects so you can have a better marketing universe. And of course, that the, you can only use that data if you can use the, do the identity matching to bring it together from all the different sources and get a complete profile of a given business or the people within the business. So this was not especially, uh, I think, different from what had been offered. But again, now we can call it a platform and we'll productize it a bit and we'll make it scale. So it's not so much a CDP sort of solution although I believe that they did have the option to bring in, uh, you know, your own company data and match it together. It was an announcement from uh, Dun & Bradstreet, actually also of something similar just, I think, the day after this, this came out. And obviously there's a big ID piece to that as well. And, and they did buy the Lattice Engines CDP, which is no doubt, uh, you know, underlying some of that uh, DNB technology. So, so you know, it's it's just something that, that B2B marketers have always done, uh, and you, you know, as over time the technology advances, you kind of package it up and, and make it more of a platform, make it more of a product than a project. So that, that's just the next step in that. Um, 
Now, the third item to anticipate was something called count with a K. Again, here we have these crazy spelling things, but they're in a very different business. There's this whole other world of not figuring out like which identities are the same people, but saying is someone who they say they are. So if I go and, and open up a bank account, am I really David Robb or am I someone pretending to be David Robb, which would be a really weird thing to do. But you know, if, if David Robb were rich enough to be worth um, you know, pretending to be, then, then it might make sense to do that because they want to get access to my vast fortune. So that's, and there's an entire business, obviously, of making sure that people are who they say they are. And that's what count does is identity trust. So they now are just adding another version of their product that actually gives a score, which is a great thing to do, that says, okay, when somebody comes on and wants to open, let's just say, a bank account or a credit card account or whatever, um, is this person who's a, who they say they are? So you send the information off to count, and they come back with a score that says, yeah, they're probably who they say they are. Well, you know, it's a little sketchy. You know, there's plenty of companies who do that. That whole identity verification uh, is a huge industry. Ah, unfortunately, it sounds like the consumer is guilty until proven innocent. To add to all the problems of illusion of choice and illusion of consent, right, David? <laughs> I guess it's all in the interest of better marketing, so hopefully it will show up in how wonderful our customer experiences are. Uh, what an interesting conversation it has been today from the evolution of data-driven decision-making to assembling a sensible MarTech stack uh, to talking about integration of clouds, uh, across clouds and platforms versus stacks, and finally, or Franken-stacks, should I say, and finally, what D2Cs are doing differently. All wrapped up with that great commentary from David on what different facets of identity resolution look like based on those news items. So we are completely out of time today, but... Thank you, Pat, David, and Anand for all of that great conversation. And, of course, as always, thank you, listeners, for joining us today and supporting The Talking Stack. Enjoyed The Talking Stack? Show us some love by subscribing or reviewing us on SoundCloud, iTunes, as well as sharing this episode on social. Find more episodes on martechadvisor.com slash talkingstack. Be sure to join us next time, and thanks for listening.